Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our executive pastor, Manny Colazzo. Hello, and welcome to Tuesday Night Church Online. I'm Pastor Manny, and I'm so glad to be filling in for Pastor Nate tonight. Hey, if whatever platform you're watching this on, on YouTube, Facebook, or any social media, make sure to like, subscribe, so you always get notified when we are uh, recording, when we put up new material for you, new sermons, and be sure to share it as well. If you, this is an easy way for you to share God's Word with your friends and family. If you find this uh, Bible study uh, meaningful to you, I'm sure God might use it in somebody else's life. And so, yeah, looking forward to uh, spending these few moments with you. If you were an extraterrestrial visiting Earth for the first time, and you heard the way Earthlings use the word church, what would you think the church is? I go to church. Maybe you've heard people say, where do you go to church? Or on Sunday, how was church today? Or what church do you go to? If you heard the word church used in that way, you'd think that church was a building, a location, or an event. Imagine if every time the word church was used in the Bible, it meant building. Hey, that would make for some pretty interesting reading, wouldn't it? Let me give you a few examples. In Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas are being sent to Jerusalem. What if the word church meant building in verse 3? The building sent them on their way. How did that happen? Or in verse 41, Paul went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the building. What, was, was Paul a structural engineer or something? If the word church meant building, I would have enjoyed seeing Acts 18, 22 happen. When Paul landed in Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the building. I wonder if this is where we get the idiom about talking to a brick wall. Hey, who needs friends and family when you have a building to help? In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 16, it tells us that if any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, she should help them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. In 1 Timothy, it says this, if any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the building be burdened with them so that the building can help those widows who are really in need. Hey, here's one more. Did you know that buildings pray? According to Acts 12, verse 5, Peter is in jail, and it says that the building prayed very earnestly for him. I wonder, does God answer their prayers quicker than ours? Hey, one more. These church, these church facilities must have been a sight to see because in Acts 11, verse 22, it says that when the news about them reached the ears of the building at Jerusalem, they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Obviously, I'm being facetious. Unfortunately, the way the word church is used has distorted God's original intent. 
And of course, we could minimize that concern and say, hey, it's just the way the, church, the word church has evolved. But folks, I have a warning for you. The chickens have come home to roost, and I believe that it has weakened the church. And that's why I believe that a reformation of Lutheresque proportion is needed to get the church back on track before Jesus returns for his church. And so my hope is that we are all challenged not only to take personal responsibility, to align ourselves individually with what God means, but even what it looks like to be the church. My prayer is that as we do that personally, that it would have profound impact organizationally so that we, Calvary Monterey, and any church you're a part of, would be the church that Jesus described in Matthew 16, that church that the gates of Hades will not overcome. But before we continue into our passage, what is the church not? Although the church can gather in a variety of locations, the church is not an address. It's not an impressive building or an entertaining weekly event. Listen, the church does have a mission to rally around and to support, but it is not a social club. It's not a nonprofit 501c3 organization or even a political party. Although church, uh, the church does have leadership roles by which to organize itself and govern itself, the church is not the pastor, staff, or its employees. The church worships in many ways, but it's not the music or the band that the music plays, that the, band, the, the music that the band plays. Although the church serves and meets all kinds of local and global needs, the church is not its ministries, amenities, or affinities. Even though the church has a rich history, the church is not its traditions or denominations. You see, these incorrect views of the church, I believe, have been a distraction that have left Christians unprepared to live out their faith in a skeptical, skeptical suspicious, and increasingly hostile post-Christian America. So what is it? What is the church? Well, why don't we let the Bible define it? I'm going to give you five examples, and what I'd like you to notice is the emphasis is not on location, meeting spaces, or even the meeting itself. When used correctly, biblically that is, church is not a place for people to come. The church is the people of God in any place. Take, for example, first example, Romans 16.5. Also, greet the church in their house. Here we see it's a gathering of people in a house. In 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1, where Paul greets the church of Thessalonica, there we see that the church is an assembly of people in a city. Later on, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul writes, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. There we see that the church is multiple gatherings throughout a region. And then we even see that again in Acts chapter 9, verse 31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria experienced peace. In each of these instances, the word church, or in the Greek, ecclesia, simply means 
an assembly of people or a gathering of people. That's it. But what made these gatherings rich, meaningful, and powerfully transformative for the people is the identity of the people. Whether they were gathering in a home, in a city, in a region, or scattered because of persecution like we've been studying in 1 Peter, they were the people rescued by the power of God for the purposes of God. That is the church. It's not about where, but who. Who is gathering? We are church. We are a gospel people. What is the church? People rescued by the power of God for the purposes of God. That is what makes our gatherings transformative. Welcome to the gathering of the church. But I have to be honest with you. Even though I have been saying that the church is not a building, if I'm going to handle God's word with integrity, I have to tell you that the church is like a building. Did you know that the first time Jesus mentions the concept of church, he compares it to the construction of a building? In Matthew 16, verse 18, he told Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. And it shouldn't surprise us that Peter, in his writings, also compares the church to a building. Pastor Nate just took us through that. If you want to go back and listen to it, listen to his last sermon on 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-6. through 6. I think this study is going to complement and dovetail really nicely with that sermon. But the building that Peter is describing in chapter 2, verse 4, isn't just any ordinary structure. When Peter writes about the temple, he is telling us that the temple is a good example for the church of what the church should look like. The temple that Peter is referring to is a good example for the church of what the church should look like. So if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read from verses 4 through 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you, you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scriptures say, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor, and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Yes, you who trust him recognize the honor God has given him. But for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And... He is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word, and so they meet the fate that was planned for them. But you, you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Nowadays, 
There is not a Jewish community in the world that doesn't have a synagogue. And many of them are called temples. However, back in Peter's day, there was only one temple. And that was the one in Jerusalem. That is the one that Peter wants us to imagine. And so if you could rewind history and go back to the times of Christ, you would see that the temple was positioned within a compound on the Temple Mount. According to Samuel Ungerleader, professor of Judaic and Religious Studies at Brown University, he writes this, the actual building of the temple could fit inside the infield of any baseball stadium. However, the large structure all around it, the large plaza, the porticos, the columns, the staircases, all of that were built up by Herod the Great on a monumental scale, filling up something like 10 football fields. So imagine a very large, conspicuous, grandiose structure in the center of Jerusalem, which attracted pilgrims from near and far. Well, since God gave detailed instructions for how the building could be used, it was considered a sacred space. It was referred to as the house of the Lord or the house of God, and it was used for celebration of holy days, offering daily sacrifices and prayers. The professor goes on to say, even the performing of rituals were in the hands of the priests. The temple played a significant role in everyone's mind, and everyone realized that this place was sacred. This sacred building that I just described to you is the metaphor Peter uses to teach us that the Jewish temple is a good example for the church of what the church should look like. And so the first truth I want you to focus on is that God builds his church on Jesus. God builds his church on Jesus. Well, why? Why does God build his church on Jesus as the foundation? Ask any engineer and they will tell you that the strength of any building lies in its foundation. The foundation must be strong enough to support the weight of the entire structure. It must be secure enough to sustain the load when occupied and durable enough to prevent the building from weaken, being weakened from the bottom up. A poorly laid foundation can be deadly, both to people and dangerous to the people around it. Well, in this passage, Peter refers to the foundation of the temple when he uses this word, cornerstone. And the connection that he wants us to make is that the cornerstone was to the temple what Jesus is to the church. That's the connection you have to make. That in the same function, the same purpose that the cornerstone served in the temple... That is the same purpose and a similar purpose that Jesus is to the church. You see, by bearing much of the temple's weight, the cornerstone, the cornerstone ensured the structural integrity for the temple. Therefore, it had to be perfect in size and strength. Well, in the same way, Jesus is the only one strong enough to sustain the church and provide the stability that we need. 
since it was the first stone to be set and the stone from which all other stones in the building would be aligned, the cornerstone had to have perfectly squared angles. In a similar way, Jesus is the only one qualified to be the reference point for the church to align itself with God. If you want to be aligned with God, look to Jesus. He is the perfect cornerstone, perfectly square. In like, just like the cornerstone was perfectly square in all of its angle, Jesus was perfect. He is our example. Since the cornerstone would connect and unite two walls of the temple, it determined the position for the entire building. Therefore, the cornerstone had to be perfectly positioned. The cornerstone essentially had to be perfect to be chosen by the builder. And Jesus was chosen by God because he was the only one capable of meeting God's perfect standards. So in answer to the question I asked, why? Why does God build his church on Jesus as the foundation? Well, here's the answer. God builds his church on Jesus because Jesus is trustworthy. God builds his church on Jesus because Jesus is trustworthy. But why does this matter? Well, so what? What impact should this have on the way we think about the church? The church can trust Jesus as much as a building rests on its cornerstone. Think about that. How heavy was that temple? All of that weight was being supported by the cornerstone. Well, you can lean your full weight, risking all of that trust on Jesus. He can take it. That's why God builds his church on Jesus, because Jesus is trustworthy. There are all kinds of things that Jesus can be trusted with. But in this passage that we just read, Peter is specific about what we can trust him with. He said in verse 5, Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scriptures say, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor. And anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. In other words... As much as the temple rested on its cornerstone, Jesus can be trusted to guarantee that God will accept and be pleased with what you do for him. Folks, when it comes to God, I know sometimes you feel like this, but when it comes to God, did you know that it doesn't have to be a crapshoot and see if God accepts and is pleased with you? You don't have to wonder if God will reject you and disgrace you. There are spiritual sacrifices, Peter is telling us, that are guaranteed to please him. And I want to share with you what some of those sacrifices are. Would you like to know what are these spiritual sacrifices that please God? I did a little bit of searching and I found a few times where we find a reference to these kinds of sacrifices that are guaranteed to be accepted by God. Here they go. In Romans 12 verse 1, it says that our bodies are a spiritual sacrifice, a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. In Hebrews 13 verses 15 through 16, mention a sacrifice of praise and good works. 
These are the sacrifices that please God. In Philippians 4, verse 18, that verse mentions money and other material things when we, that we share with others. Here, I'll read it for you. At the moment, I have all I need and more. I am generously supplied with the gifts you sent me with Epaphroditus. They are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. And number five, Romans 15, verse 16. Here it refers to people that start following Jesus. They are acceptable sacrifices to God. I am a special messenger from Christ Jesus to you Gentiles. I bring you the good news so that I might present to you, present you as an acceptable offering to God made holy by the Holy Spirit. Wow. Amazing. These are guaranteed to be accepted by God. Think of all the people around the world who know there is a God. Some of them might think there is a God or some higher power out there. Unfortunately, many of them don't know what pleases him or how to do anything that he will accept. And so they try rituals, relics, and and spiritual disciplines like prayer and fasting. They make promises to behave. They make vows not to misbehave. But do you know, even many churchgoers experience the same. They might even do one of the five things we just looked at and listed out for you. But inside, they instinctively know that maybe it won't work. Maybe I have to do more. Maybe I have to sacrifice more. And hopefully, maybe, please, God, will you accept me? Or disgrace me by rejecting me. There are people like that all over the world. Maybe that's the way you're feeling about God. In a similar way, the Jewish people of Jesus' time felt that same way offering sacrifice after sacrifice. In addition to all of the sacrifices they offered throughout the year, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would access the inner room of the temple, called the Holy of Holies, where it was believed that God lived. And once there, he would represent the people to God, perform a ritual to atone for the sins of the people. And afterwards, he would exit and represent God to the people. And next year, the following year, they repeat the process again and again and again. Well, because Peter says at the beginning of verse 5 that the sacrifices that please God are those that have been, what did he say? Mediated through Jesus. Not through human effort. Not through human merit or human achievement. But through Jesus and his finished work, only Jesus can guarantee that your spiritual sacrifices will be accepted by God. This is why God builds his church on Jesus. Jesus is trustworthy. Folks, when it comes to God, you don't have to guess. You don't have to cross your fingers and hope that God accepts you and is pleased with you and doesn't reject you by, doesn't disgrace you by rejecting you. Because of Jesus, you can confidently know if your faith is in the cross and you've believed in what he did on the cross of Calvary to rescue you, you can confidently know that your deeds, 
your words that you speak, any and all sacrifices that you make will be acceptable to God. Amen. Isn't that comforting? Isn't that encouraging? Hey, God builds his church on Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is trustworthy. But did you notice what God uses as building materials for his church? Even though Peter is imagining the temple, remember that this is just a good example for the church of what the church should look like. He's telling the church that, God is de- that what God is designing isn't made out of life- lifeless materials like bricks and mortar, plaster and steel. No, the church God builds is being constructed out of what Peter calls in verse 5, living stones. What is a living stone? I'm glad you asked. There's no need to guess. We don't have to invent or get creative. He tells us what the living stones are. Verse 5 says, you are living stones. You are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. You and me, people who believe in the gospel, all those who believe in Jesus, people are the living stones that God uses to build his temple. Just like the builders of the physical temple did, God selects, he shapes, he adds people to erect the walls of a spiritual temple that is called the church. And so here's number two, God builds his church with people. God builds his church with people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul there said this, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God? But the verse doesn't end there. It goes on to tell us what makes this so special. Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? Folks, God builds his church with people so they could do what a building could never do, contain his presence. That is why God builds his church with people. Because only they can do what a building could never do, which is house the very presence of God. Well, so what? Why does this matter that God builds his church with people? Folks, listen. Words are a big deal. Language is important. Even how we use the word church exposes our beliefs about church. And those beliefs influence how we behave as the church. If church were merely a building or an event, then that language exposes the false belief that the presence of God is limited to a building or during an event. That belief influences us to behave as if God is not in people. For example, not yet believers think that they can escape God if they don't come to a building. As if an all-knowing, omnipresent God doesn't know or see everything. I mean, who can blame them? I expect them to have this distorted belief about God. 
But what surprises me is the church. See, you and I, we should know better. We claim to know that God is in us. But our behavior, the way we live our lives, betrays that we believe something else. Folks, God is in you. You were designed to do what a building could never do. God is in you means that his power, his boldness, his peace is available to you everywhere, even in the everyday stuff of life. When you put on that neighbor hat, when you put on that student hat, when you put on the hat of a parent, a spouse, a customer, a citizen, an employee, an employer, God is in you, even then. God is in you, gives you the necessary power to resist sin, to live a holy life. And as he gives you that power to resist sin, God in you reminds you that you have been declared holy and are being made holy. The fact that you are designed by God to contain God's presence means that you don't have to live in fear thinking as if if something bad happens, then that must mean that God has abandoned you. No, he hasn't. He's in you. He is with you to protect you and provide for you. Let me explain why this is important. God builds his church with people to contain his presence. God builds his church with people to contain his presence. Now, don't understand contain as in restricting or keeping the lid on him. No, that's not what I mean at all. The fact that he is in you means that God can work through you when you are here, there, everywhere you go. Buildings were never designed to do what only people were designed to do, contain the presence of God. Why does this matter? Why does this matter that God builds his church with people? It matters because it flies in the face of what has been distracting and weakening his church for too long. Hey, people are attracted and inspired by beautiful buildings made by people for people. In the meantime, what we should be in awe of is that God has been designing for himself a people that would contain him. And do you know what happens? Giants are slayed. The impossible becomes possible. Dead things are resurrected. Weapons formed against you are defeated and can't prosper. Addictions are broken. You bring healing and hope everywhere when this switch is made in your mind. So I ask you, will you be impressed with and inspired to give yourself to the work that God does in us? Whether we're gathered in a park, under a bridge, under a tree, in a bar, in an apartment, or in a building, that is how God works. And that can happen anywhere. See, we need to keep this perspective. Facilities, all they're meant to do is facilitate. Buildings are simply tools that are meant to be used, but they do not define the church's purpose. The church is the people of God who have been rescued by the power of God for the purposes of God.
Why does God build his church on Jesus and with people? Let's read again verse 5. Let's see what it says about these living stones. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Not only are you the stones, but he's telling us here, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. Inside the physical temple that Peter is thinking of were the temple priests who their job was to maintain the temple and facilitate the people's connection to God. Among other services, they would bless the people. They would read the scriptures to the people, collect their offerings. The priests were responsible to oversee all aspects of temple worship and the sacrificial system. Even though Peter is imagining the temple, remember, it's simply a metaphor of a spiritual temple, which is a good example for the church of what the church should look like. The temple stones remind us that God builds his church with people to contain his presence. Now the temple priests... The temple priests remind us that God built his church for a purpose. Read verse 9 again. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result of who you are, as a result of who you are, not what you do, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Folks, Words are a big deal. Language is important. How we use the word church exposes our beliefs about church. And those beliefs influence how we behave as the church. So if every time we use the word church, it means that every time we, believe, every time we use the word church, it means that we believe that the church is the people of God who have been rescued by the power of God for the purposes of God. That language then reveals the belief that the church has been given a purpose. And verse 9 tells us what that purpose is. That purpose is to display his goodness. Number two, God builds his church for a purpose to display his goodness. God built, I'm sorry, I think that was number three. God builds his church for a purpose to display his goodness. In the same way that the priests served the needs of the people who came to the temple seeking God, wanting to be right and to get right with God, that in the same way is the purpose of the church, is to be like those priests. You and I are royal priests. We put the goodness of God on display. God, because of us, becomes accessible. He's not distant as those who don't know him think he is. He has made a way for people to get close to him. That's what we're putting on display. Look at what he has done in my life. I am evidence that God is good. That's what you are. That's what you're saying. How? You. You are the way he does that. 
God wants people to know that is your purpose as the church. God wants people to know that he is good. And so what does he do? He chooses you. He pulls you out of darkness and makes you part of these people called the church so that he can show others what he wants to do and can do with them. God builds his church for a purpose. What is that purpose? To display his goodness. But folks, I think that in order to do this, we have to recapture the word church. We need to take responsibility of how we've misused it. We need to repent for our misunderstanding and align ourselves with God's definition. I think that's where a simple way for this to begin. Recapture what we mean and how we use the word church. The story is told about a contractor in Michigan who was building a house. And the construction of the first floor, it went smoothly. But when they started on the second floor, they had nothing but trouble. Nothing, none of the material from the lumber yard were fit properly. Then they discovered the reason. They were working with two different sets of blueprints. Once they got rid of the old set, everything went well and they built a lovely house. Similarly, I think too often Christians hinder, and I say hinder because we can't prevent the building and the progress of the church. We interrupt it. Christians hinder, we interrupt the building and progress of the church because they're following the wrong set of plans. You see, when Solomon built his temple, his workmen followed the plan so carefully that everything fit together on the construction site. If all of us would follow God's blueprint given in his word, he will build his church for his glory. And so I think it's time for us to recapture how we use and what we mean by this word church. I think it's time for us to reorient our lives to reflect the temple building that Peter refers to in 1 Peter in three ways. In the same way that the temple building fully rested all of its way on the cornerstone, you and I, the church, can fully put all of our trust on its cornerstone, Jesus, the only one who is perfectly qualified to sustain it. Number one, God builds his church on Jesus. It's time for us to reorient our lives in this way. God builds his church with people. For what purpose? To contain his presence. His presence is not in this room. It's not in that building. It's in you and me. And when we keep that in mind, that changes everything, doesn't it? And number three, God builds his church for a purpose. What is your and my purpose? It's to display his goodness. Join me in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for the privilege that it is to be identified with your people, the church. And thank you for the beautiful example of this temple building. So many elements of it speak, of point to your purposes and what you desire to do in and through a people that you have set apart for your purposes, for your glory. Lord, help us to get our eyes off of buildings, facilities, and campus and focus our attention on you, what you've called us to do, who you've called us to be.
Lord, we cast our cares and our trust upon the cornerstone that you've given us, Jesus. Because of him, everything we do, all of our worship is acceptable, received by you. Lord, may we see ourselves as containers of your presence. Wherever we go, wherever we at, any time during the everyday, even the mundane stuff of our lives as moms and dads, kids and workers and uh, co-workers and employers, everything, when we're having fun, when we're playing at the gym, when we're in the grocery store, all of that, Lord, can be infused with the miraculous because you are there. You haven't abandoned us. And Father, may we see ourselves with this purpose that the way we live our lives and how we act and our purpose is to display your goodness, just like the temple priest did. And so, Father, we love you. We thank you. We give you all the honor and credit and glory that you deserve. In Jesus' name, God bless you. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.